This is Gary Bembridge and this is My Travel Reviews, a podcast of first-hand travel experience for people with a passion for travel. Based on the two to three weeks a month, I travel all over the world. And this week, we're oh la la in Paris, France. Yes, hello and welcome. This is podcast number six in the series. I'm Gary Bembridge and I'm recording this podcast in Paris, France, um, the week of the 13th of October 2005. Welcome. Paris itself is a magical city. The mention of its name immediately evokes an image of style, sophistication and, of course, glamour. And without a shadow of a doubt, this is one beautiful city, whatever the season the broad boulevards, the clever layout of the city means you can see the very famous landmarks, in most cases lined up through very careful town planning over the centuries. As it was occupied by the German Nazis during the Second World War, its buildings, its historical architecture has escaped the hammering and destruction that so many other European cities on either side of the war went through. As I was travelling to Paris on this trip on the Eurostar, my most favourite and most recommended way, to get from London to Paris. I was trying to remember just how many times I've visited this magical city, and I think it must be close to 20 times. And for a wide range of reasons, and with a wide range of experiences, from camping as a student way back in the summer of 1980, through to attending some very glamorous meetings at one of the most ridiculously expensive hotels, to more usually usually as a tourist popping over from London for a weekend break or for a work meeting. This week on the podcast, I'm going to take a look at Paris and, as usual, give you my travel reviews of the stylish city and let you know what you absolutely must do if you visit. So this week on the podcast, we're going to take a look at the Eurostar and the Channel Tunnel, a very short history and a review of the service, a very short history and facts about Paris, the places and things you absolutely must do if you visit Paris, things you could do in a packed few days visit. So we're going to look at 10 of those. I'm going to talk a little bit about a place to say that's very central and just generally about accommodation in Paris. And then a post back with listener comments and feedback, including my travel reviews correction section, where I'm going to correct some errors in a previous podcast that someone kindly pointed out. But I had some great emails, and I'd like to thank those of you who've listened and, of course, those of you who subscribed. And the last thing I'm going to do at the end of this podcast is recommend another travel podcast that I've been listening to that you may want to take a listen to, and that's iPod Traveller. So, enough of that. Parlez-vous anglais, because I can only speak English, I can't speak French. Let's get on with Paris. I came to Paris on, as I mentioned in the opening there, on Eurostar, which I absolutely adore. I love, love going on Eurostar, love going on trains, and I really do not understand why people still fly from Paris to London or from London to Paris when you can go on the Eurostar from city centre to city centre in a much less hassled way. You know, Britain and France were for a very long time, you know, this very large maritime commercial power. And the two of them were only 34 kilometres apart. But trading was very hazardous because the, the shortest route, which was from Calais to across the Straits of Dover, was also very difficult. It was very, very rough, and, you know, it just could be a nightmare crossing, whether it's on the ferry or by ship or whatever, because it could be very rough. And and many, many, many years ago, 
you know, about a century or so ago, it could take you up to six or seven hours to, to cross that. And of course, people could be seasick. Now, many argue that Queen Victoria, after feeling a little bit queasy, really inspired people to try and find a, another way. And it and there was various plots and plans and all sorts of things about trying to cross the channel, including going way, way back to Napoleon's time where he was looking at, at a tunnel and people were petrified because they thought he would use that as a way to, to invade. But finally, 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 in 1986, the UK and France managed to agree on something, which is uh, a big thing in its own right, even today. And they chose a rail tunnel over a, the idea of a very long suspension bridge. And they began digging in 1987, and finally it was completed in 1991, although the tunnel was actually only opened in May 1994. It was constructed by an Anglo-French consortium, uh, Transmarch Link, TML for short, and the client was Eurotunnel. Now, Eurotunnel still own and operate the tunnel, so it's a private thing, and it's in humongous amounts of debt. I mean, when they built the Channel Tunnel, it just ran horrifically, horrifically over budget. I think it cost about six billion to to spend and to build. And they still owe most of that money and they're just in a mess. And if you actually have owned shares and you're a tunnel, I mean, soon they will just be completely worthless. But anyway, there, there are a couple of ways you can travel. You can either go on a passenger train, which is Eurostar, which is a completely separate company, or you can go on these co- these coach things where you drive onto them with your own motor vehicle onto special rail cars. And the train trucks through there up to 160 kilometers or 100 miles an hour. And it takes around about, as you go into the tunnel, about 20, 30 minutes to get through the tunnel. It took 13,000 engineers and technicians to construct the tunnels. But actually, when we talk about the channel tunnel, it's actually a slight misnomer because there's actually three tunnels. There's two running tunnels, one in each way, and there's a smaller service tunnel. And there's like a crossover in the middle. These tunnels are, in case there's an emergency or something like that, the trains can actually change to, to either side. The tunnels themselves are about 50 meters below the seabed. And actually, it was relatively easy to dig because there's a chalk mall, as it's called, underneath the sea, which is relatively easy to, to, to dig through. And about 85% of the tunnels were constructed through this chalk mall stuff. There's a terminal in Folkestone in the UK, and then there's one near Calais at Sangat. About 84 kilometres of tunnels, because of these three kind of tunnels, were constructed on the English side, and about 69 kilometres of tunnels on the French side. And the tunnels under the sea are about 30 metres apart. But it's really great going on Eurostar. You you get on the train in, in say, Waterloo, which is in central London. Very civilised, very slick operation in terms of getting in, although when the actual terminal was built, they hadn't really thought of or expected the kind of security that's come into place after 9-11, etc. So it's a little bit cramped as you're trying to get through security. You go through two passport checks, UK and French, and then the actual waiting area is quite cramped. But that's going to change in a couple of years' time when the whole thing moves more to North London, to St Pancras. They're moving the whole um, the whole Eurostars um, from Waterloo to St Pancras, which is a little bit more North London where they're building lots of new platforms and all sorts of things to cater for that, and I guess there'll be more space. You then zoom into Gardenau, which is central Paris, and, you know, so, for example, it takes about a 15, 20-minute cab ride, say, to the Champs-Élysées. If, if, you know, so it's, it's just very, very easy. The Eurostar service, they have this slightly complicated thing now because they've just introduced three classes. So they have, like, a tourist class, if you like, it's a regular class. They have what they now call, um, like, a, a, a leisure select 
and then they have business select although they haven't quite differentiated enough between them but i guess the idea was business select is carriages full of business people working or whatever leisure select is people who want to pay the premium for the food that you get on board um, more space that kind of stuff more comfortable seats but they're kind of tourist and so it's probably a little bit more rowdy because it used to be slightly annoying not annoying it's but but sort of like a little bit crazy because you're you say trying to work if you're there on a business trip but you have people who are kind of going for a weekend away or whatever if you go in either leisure select or business select you get a meal which is pretty good and i'm actually just looking at the menu here you get a choice of of, of stuff so a nice printed menu so we had for example a lemon pepper chicken with red pesto penne pasta salad as a starter shepherd's pie or a salmon dish and then uh, bread and butter pudding and you get wines and champagnes and drinks and that kind of stuff and it's and the food's pretty good as it were so the one thing i would say with the eurostar is the prices fluctuate wildly so it's very important if you're perhaps going there for pleasure to actually plan ahead the site is pretty good eurostar.co.uk or .com or whichever country you're going from. But if you just type in Eurostar.com, it gives you the options uh, in terms of language, etc. But watch the times of train and watch you know, the, the, the prices because there's a huge variance of prices. And you can pay a lot of money to go on Eurostar, depending on how soon or, or far ahead you actually book it. So the Eurostar is great. I would strongly recommend you go on the Eurostar. It's very slick. It's very clean. It's very efficient. And you go from central London to central Paris. It's just great. So let's talk a little bit about Paris. So you've got to Paris, you've got to Gardenau, and you've zoomed off to your hotel. I'll talk about hotels a little bit later. The only thing I would say is if you're going on Eurostar, you know, Eurostar carries a lot of people. And one of the problems when you arrive at Gardenau is if you're getting a cab, you can queue for a very, very, very long time to get a cab. So sometimes if I'm going on business... I'll actually arrange um, some kind of pickup because you could just queue for an hour or, or more sometimes for a cab. Um, if you're going on, on, you know, for a weekend away or something, then I tend to be a bit more relaxed because I may use the, the, the underground or the metro as it's called there. So just think about that and, and certainly plan that into your time. Paris, you know, if you read some histories of Paris, a lot of people argue that Parisians can be a little bit wary, can be a little bit offhand with outsiders. And they, they track this back to the history of of Paris, which actually I hadn't realized, but actually has a very turbulent history and has actually been invaded and occupied many, many times, including the Romans, the Huns, the Normans, the English, the Germans. And so it's, it's, it's really been, um, you know, under a lot of stress at a lot of, a lot of time. It's more than 2000 years old. Paris was conquered by Julius Caesar in 52 BC. And for a very long time, it acted as their kind of regional center and um, although you don't see a lot of the Roman stuff and influence there, I guess it probably still is. I guess Paris is best known for the storming of the Bastille in 1789 when you had the French Revolution, which really moved France from a monarchy into, into more of a republic. But it also has a very tumultuous time in various wars, the Franco-Prussian War, where it was besieged for many months. During the World War I, the Germans actually were stopped from reaching Paris, but they actually occupied Paris in World War II for, from 1940 to 1944. So for a very long time it was, it was occupied and, and was a very controversial time in, in Parisian history. But what's interesting is, you know, part of that charm of Paris is not only was the architecture, as I mentioned in the opening, retained because of, of, of not being caught up in, in bombing campaigns from either side, 
many of the, the presidents and many of the, the, the leaders of France have always had a lot of grand projects. So Francois Mitterrand, for example, he spent a lot of time when he was president um, building arches and renovating the Louvre and, and really just you know, creating lots of, 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 of beautiful architecture. And there's a real sense of style about all the leaders of, of Paris. In more recent years... You know, the, the, the bicentennial of the French Revolution in, in 1989 was, was when there was an amazing, amazing um, new project. So the, the Louvre reopened with this kind of glass pyramid, which was very controversial. The Grand Arch at La Defense, the Opera Bastille and things like this were opened. And it was just a very magical time and gave a lot of energy. In 1992, Disneyland Paris opened with 5,000 acres. And also, again, very controversial, seen as being a little bit American, had a rocky ride, is still, I don't think, very profitable. But it's actually a, a pretty good place to visit. And then in 1998, they had the, the Soccer World Cup, and they built this beautiful big stadium, the, the, the Stade de France, which they actually had as the centre of their 2012 Olympic bid, which controversially, for many, went to London. So that's a little bit of history of, of Paris. Let's talk about what on earth is there to do. And... In line with what I normally do on podcasts, I'm going to tell you kind of the places and things to visit. So I'm going to talk about a city tour. I'm going to talk about the Eiffel Tower. I'm going to talk about the Louvre, the Champs-Élysées Promenade, where you, you go up through the Arc de Triomphe. The, now, you can tell my French is terrible, the Musée d'Orsay. I'm going to talk about the Seine, which goes the river which goes through Paris. Ile de la Cité, an island on the, on, on the Seine, which includes the Notre Dame Cathedral, the Pompidou Centre, I'm going to talk about the Lido show and I'm going to talk about Versailles. I'm not going to talk about Disneyland Paris or the more French-based park, Astra theme parks, because I'm focusing really if you've got a limited time to stay. And as a separate thing, I'll actually talk about, about those. So those are things I'm going to talk about. So as you know, whenever I go to a city, one of the things I recommend is go on one of those open-top bus tours. It sounds very touristy. It sounds... In, in English, I guess, uh, you keep your mace a little bit naff. It sounds a little bit um, pathetic almost, as if you don't have enough sense of adventure. But I always, always, always recommend it. And they have a great one in, in Paris. It's called the Paris La Open Tour. An open-top bus. It goes to over 50 stops, and you can buy one or two-day tickets for between 25 and 28 euros. So it's relatively expensive, but you can actually use them, as I said, for one whole day or two whole days. And there's 50 stops. There's, there's lots of different companies do them, but that is probably one of the, the, the best ones, which is Paris La Open Tour. And I'll put a link, as usual, on the, the, the show notes. But if you're interested, it's, it's www.paris-opentour.com. And they have um, English or different language um, commentary, and it really is great. There's four actually different routes and 50 stops, and you go everywhere. And, you, and there's so much to see in Paris, and I would strongly, strongly recommend that you actually you actually do that. There are also some other tours, and I'll put links on the blog again. There's actually a bike tour, which if you're feeling very energetic and in summer is quite good, called Fat Tire Bike Tours. And they're guided bike tours in, in English. They, they run up until only about the middle of December. And you meet at the Eiffel Tower. There's a special yellow sign, and, and the website for that is 
fattirebiketours.paris.com. If you're really feeling energetic, there's, there's, there's a lot of walking tours. And the best one of those is um, at paris-walks.com. And they have English tours around um, the different neighborhoods. Or you can do them around themes, like, of course, inevitably the new one, which is the Da Vinci Code theme. And I'll talk a little bit about that when I talk about the Louvre. If you're really feeling lazy, but you want to get a sense of the city, the, the other tour you can do is, is, is one called Explore Paris. And they build this as three ways to experience experience the city Paris. The Paris story spins through 2,000 years of Paris history in a 50-minute panoramic film using the city's architecture, art historical photographs, and contemporary and archival films to illustrate the story along with wonderful music. A great way to begin your discovery of Paris, thrown, shown 365 days a year from 9am to 7pm in 12 languages. Now before that film you can either visit Paris Miniature, which is a, a scale model of the city, or Paris Experience, which is a series of five short films that explore the city following different themes. And I'll put a link to that again on, on the podcast. So that's kind of almost a lazy way if you like, or if, if it's really lousy and cold. I mean we actually did the, the open bus tour last time I was in Paris. And it was the middle of winter and we were all bundled up on the top of the, the coach. But it was, it was quite fun anyway. So let's have a look at some other places. You've done your tour, but there's a couple of places I would strongly recommend you go to. And the first of those is, of course, the Louvre. The Louvre is probably one of the most famous of the French things to do in Paris. Um, I guess the Eiffel Tower is probably the best known. But the Louvre has dominated central Paris actually since the late 12th century but it was really um, Louis the, the 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 Louis particularly leading up to Louis the 14th that had a big impact on the Louvre and and what they call the Tuileries um, area around it because they they extended it they expanded it and and built lots onto it which created more or less the building that we know today however when Versailles was built the, the, the royals kind of lost interest a little bit in the Louvre and they were more interested in Versailles. And so the Louvre kind of fell into a period of not really being used very much. After the French Revolution, though, it, 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 it really kind of changed its role. And in 1793, the museum, a small museum was opened called the Museum Central des Arts, uh, which was opened in the Grand Gallery and the Salon Carré. I think that's how you pronounce it. And slowly... Collections were added and added and added until eventually it took over the, the whole building. Now, the Louvre builds itself on its site as open to all since 1793. It's got 35,000, just imagine that, 35,000 works of art. And it focuses on eight kind of different departments. And they have 60,000 square meters of exhibition space. And, of course, it has famous things like the Mona, the Mona Lisa and stuff in it. It's a massive museum, and what I really recommend is you, you kind of look at the site and decide a couple of things that you want to do or one department, because it's just eventually it's just overload. So you might say, I'm going to spend a couple of hours here. There's a couple of key things I want to see and do a little bit of research and decide. It's just too big. Otherwise, it's just, just much, much, much too big. Actually, what I hadn't realized, and I only realized it when, when, when preparing for this podcast, is that the Louvre only has artwork up until 1848, but 1848 is kind of the cut-off period, and they only look at stuff before that. But it does continue to expand, and they're actually working on um, an Islamic art department, which is going to open in 2009 and a couple of others. Now, the Louvre, of course, has had this big resurgence of, of interest based on the, the Da Vinci Code book. 
And you can actually do walking tours, as I mentioned earlier, based on Dan Brown's thread of the Da Vinci Code. And you start in front of the Ritz Hotel, which is where Robert Langdon, the, the main character, and you go to the Louvre and you walk all around the Louvre. And, and what they do is they discuss what, what happened, what they did in the Louvre. They don't take you through the Louvre, but they, they kind of tell you what to do. And then they, they stroll around some other, some other places. And it, 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 I'm not sure that it's really worth it because it's, it's kind of a walking tour without that much point, I think. But anyway, it's something if you're interested in the book and, and, and whatnot. The other thing to do once you've once you've done that is is because you're right down there at the bottom of the the Champs Elysees. The next thing to do is to really then then walk up the Champs Elysees, and that's that's something that's really magical. Come out to the Louvre and, and walk up towards the Arc de Triomphe up the Champs Elysees. Now the Champs Elysees had been there for a while. It was what it means is the Elysian Fields, and it was actually just fields. And in about 1660, uh, Marie de Medici decided to put up this big tree-lined path, which is still the heart, really, of the Champs-Élysées. And it became very fashionable during the late 1600s, um, and it was just extended, extended, extended. But the city eventually took control of the Champs-Élysées in 1828, and they started adding more of the footpaths and the fountains that you see. They started putting in gas lighting. And driving around this area is a nightmare, um, actually, because it's, it's, you have the Arc de Triomphe and, and traffic entering Paris kind of just gets gridlocked around, around the Arc, Arc de Triomphe, and it's quite scary actually trying to drive around there. And if you ever go in a car, if you go in a cab, for example, you just close your eyes and wait for a crash. It doesn't seem to come, but it's, it's manic, the traffic around there. In fact, the traffic in Paris is manic anyway. But as you walk, you walk up the Champs-Élysées, and it's full of very famous kind of designer shops and, and it's, it's a strange mix of designer shops, car showrooms, airline offices and kind of tacky um, tourist places. It's a very strange mix of stuff. But you walk up till you get to the Arc de Triomphe, which is right at the top, which Napoleon um, actually intended as a celebration of his victories, but it actually wasn't finished until the Battle of Waterloo, which actually brought his, his downfall. And actually at the Arc de Triomphe is you have the remains of an unknown soldier from World War One, and they have an eternal flame burning under it, and it's a very, it's a, it's a very beautiful, very beautiful arch, and um, it's covered in, in all sorts of friezes telling the history of, of various battle, and there's actually four sort of relief sculptures on the basis of the four pillars, and they, they, they do celebrate various successes, um, which which I don't actually know the history of, but things like the triumph of 1810, the resistance and peace, the departure of volunteers, etc., etc. And engraved around the top of the arch are names of, of major victories won during the revolutionary Napoleon, Napoleonic periods. And there's a little um, museum which, which explains much more. But there's all like names of, of, of generals who died in action, and it, it, it's, it's really, really interesting. But in Armistice, Armistice Day, which is 11th of November, the president lays a wreath there, and in Bastille Day they, they have this huge, huge, big flag which is which is hung down the centre. It's absolutely just massive, 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 massive flag. It's 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 really is is quite something. So that, that's the Champs Elysees, and it's always very busy in this, and and there's, tourists kind of congregate there and walk around. There's lots and lots of of, of traffic, etc. The next thing to do probably is to go to the Pompidou Centre. We will get to the Eiffel Tower eventually, I promise you. But the next thing to do, which I, I really like to do, is, is the Pompidou Centre. Now, the Pompidou Centre 
is was was originally created by President George Pompidou at the time, and he wanted to create kind of a, a cultural institution as a part of his legacy, but in the heart of Paris, but focused on modern and contemporary and stuff, and much more visual art, because obviously, as we said, the Louvre was was more you know pre eighteen forty eight more artwork, and he wanted to to have a place of visual arts, so theatre, music, cinema, literature, spoken words. This this building is a very funny looking building, I guess, in a way, and it was designed. Um, as a result of a competition by a guy called Renzo Piano and Richard Rogers, who's a very famous English architect. And it was it was supposed to capture the spirit of the 20th century, and it opened in 1977. It was actually closed for quite a while in 1997 to 1999 and reopened in 2000 with more space and, and reception areas. Because actually, it, it, it almost looks like all the... The, the the stuff that's normally hidden away, like the pipes and the air conditioning ducts, they look like they're all on the outside. It almost looks like the building's been, been inverted, if you like. And, and so you have this metallic structure with all these pipes and things on the outside. It's very, very kind of unusual-looking building, but very popular. About 6 million people actually visit it um, every year. And they claim to have had something like 150 million visitors in the last 25 years. But it has an amazing collection of modern and contemporary art, huge library. And it's just very interesting because it tends to attract more younger people. There's more people kind of wandering around. There's kind of stuff going on. And and it it is just, it it is a very interesting thing. And and as I said, you have these big color-coded ducts on the outside and it sort of wraps around. And when you read all the stuff, it all tells you the theory of the different colors and everything. But it's just a very open kind of, Interesting, really interesting place, interesting people um, uh, all, all around there. Now, if you, while you're still on this art kick, the other place to go is the Musée d'Orsay. Orsay. Now, you can tell my French is terrible. So that's M-U-S-E-E D apostrophe O-R-S-A-Y. Now, this was actually opened in only in 1986, so relatively new. And what it does, it kind of carries on where the Louvre finishes. So it carries on from 18, artwork from 1848 to about 19. 19- 14. And this is an amazing building. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. And it was originally from, from 1900 to 1939. It was the head of the, the Southwest French Rail Network. And there was a big hotel there which had lots of very famous um, events kind of happening. It was a grand hotel. After 1939, the, the station kind of only served the suburbs because as these big new modern trains came in at that time it, and, and railways got electrified, it just it just wasn't big enough. The platforms weren't, weren't big enough. Now, in the Second World War, it was a mailing center for prisoners of war, and then when when people were liberated, the prisoners were kind of processed um, through there, and it's been used as a set for films. The hotel at at, at this place closed in 1973. And for a long time, it was going to kind of be knocked down. But the French are much more disciplined, I guess, about protecting their their heritage and protecting their architecture. So they actually kind of um, uh, listed it, I guess, is what we would call it in in in, in most places. So it was listed um, as a kind of a historical monument. And so they decided in 1977 to build this this museum. And it was led by President Valéry Giscard. And as you can see, the presidents play a very big role in terms of this architectural thing. And eventually, it was actually opened, though, by François Mitterrand in, in 1986. And it it has a lot of um, kind of artwork, which was originally owned by the Louvre, but didn't fall within its remit. Lots of stuff that came in 
in after that period and it's it just it, it's, it's just an amazing place and just even just going to see the building is is just is just really really quite quite something and so if you've probably had enough of artwork and museums by now now's about the time to go to the eiffel tower probably the most famous of all of the things to do in paris now the eiffel tower was built in 1889 for um, an exhibition called the Universal Exposition, which celebrating the centenary of the French Revolution. It, the contractor was actually Gustave Eiffel, and um, he actually was a real master at at this whole thing of of metal and construction. He was involved in lots of different projects, bridges, and and even was involved in 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 input into the the Statue of Liberty and all that kind of stuff. It actually took two years, two months, and five days to build. So it took quite a while to build, and and it was obviously relatively complex. There's eighteen over eighteen thousand individual parts. It was almost like a like a Lego a Lego set or or a Meccano set in terms of of putting it together. It actually doesn't weigh that much. They they argue, although I mean in relative terms it does. And of course, as you know, if you go to Las Vegas, and I'll talk about Las Vegas in a future podcast, they have a, a, a replica of it, but it's fifty percent exactly fifty percent of of the height. Now, the wind causes the tower to sway six to seven um, centimeters at the top. And when it's hot, the curve of movement actually it actually goes anything up to 18 centimeters. So it's kind of, it, it, it's, it sways about. I mean, well, you don't really feel it that much. Although if you don't like heights, you feel it does. But um, it, it was renovated in 1980, 1985, and, and quite a lot of um, work was done on it to, to really strengthen it up. And they've also put this um, new funky lighting thing which they run at, at nights which is which makes it glitter it's it's really it's really quite amazing again it gets about six million visitors you see the kind of theme many of these places get about six million visitors so i assume it's the same six million people moving around probably now in terms of going up the Eiffel tower in summer you could queue for absolutely ever so the secret is either getting there when it first opens or going in the evenings at night it's open right up until about midnight or sometimes later in in, in summer and actually going up at night is amazing that the views etc you can actually get up different ways. You can either climb the stairs or take elevators up. So the stairs are open to the public, but they only go up to the second floor, which is pretty high, so you have to be pretty fit. It's about 150 metres high. Then there's three elevators on the north, west, and east pillars, which go up to the first and second floors. But any, any one day, they only have one or two operating, so you just need to make sure. And you can tell by the huge, big um, uh, queues. Once you get to the first or second floor to get to the top, which is t- 276 metres high, you have to take another elevator. And and you can wait for a very long time. Now, they have two very famous restaurants there, uh, which are the Altitude 95, which is on the first floor. And, and the reason it's called that is because it's 95 metres above sea level. And it looks out over the Seine and the Trocadero and, and, and to the inside of the tower on the other. And it's supposed to be capturing the sense of being an airship moored above Paris. And it, it's quite big. It seats about 200 people. Then there's a very upmarket Jules Verne restaurant, which is on the second floor with its own private elevator. And um, it's got a very good reputation. And, and it is one of the top restaurants in France. It has a one star in the Michelin Guide. And, and it, it's, it, it looks out of a Paris, and it's, 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 it's quite funky. So on the ground floor, they have an exhibition of original elevator machinery. On the first floor, you've got exhibits and displays and a bit of shopping and as i said the one restaurant on the second floor you get great photographs and then of course the top is 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 really just amazing and it's also worth seeing at night just for all that kind of glittery um uh, illuminations that they've they've built in which is which is really 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 quite quite fun and quite quite funky and, and and you can see that obviously from from a long distance 
So as you can see, there's a lot to do in Paris. So if you've still got time and still got energy, the next thing to do is to go to what is what I'll pronounce again badly, which is the Ile de la Cité, which is C-I-T-E. And this is, many argue, this is kind of the heart of, of, of Parisian civilization because it was here that the original tribe lived. It's when, when Caesar was had conquered Paris in, in, in 52 AD. It was kind of where they set up camp. And basically it's an island. And it has two main roles, one of which is religious and one of which is judicial. And, and that was right from the Middle Ages and it still has that kind of heritage. Notre Dame, which is the most famous cathedral and also made famous by things like the hunchback, hunchback of Notre Dame, began in 1163. And it's, it's, it, it's considered to be on a sacred spot. And it's a beautiful cathedral. It really is worth going to look at. And it is, it is quite stunning. And, and, and inside it, it's 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 you know, just vast and cavernous and, and has a, because it's been there so long, it has this really um, kind of amazing feel about it. Um, and there is a much, another much smaller um, chapel, which is Sainte-Chapelle. Now, originally, um, it was two islands and, and they joined the islands t t together, um, you know, by the 17th century. And it did at the time in the 17th century become a place where lots of lords and financiers and posh people did. So you still have these these kind of man mansions which, which still, still ex exist. Um, in terms of, of crossing, there's, there's a, the most famous place to cross is called Pont Neuf, N-E-U-F. And near the bridge, if you could cross the bridge into, into Paris, you get the, the very famous department store, Samaritain. Which is which is very good for shopping and has a, has a lovely cafe terrace. As I said, Notre Dame is 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 really worth seeing. It's it's Gothic architecture and has rose windows that glow, kind of, um, and it's just it's really really good. You can climb up the west facade to see the Seine from above, and this is where the story of the Hunchback comes from. And you see all the twisted gargoyles, very bizarre gargoyles. And, um, you know, and it's very popular. Actually, if you go up there, you'll recognize the scene. It's a scene that many film directors would, would use. Now, the other end is, is, the, seat, is the Palais de Justice, which, um, which is where, in many years ago, there used to be the, the famous prison, where people were then hauled out of there to the Place de Concorde to be guillotined. And actually, you can go and see there um, Marie Antoinette's chamber, uh, where, she, where she was before she had her head lobbed off. So so probably by now you've probably got a bit tired of sightseeing. So what about a bit of Parisian glamour? One of the things to do, and I think it's great, it's relatively expensive, is to go to one of these famous Parisian cabarets in the evening. Now, my personal recommendation is at the Lido, which is on the Champs-Élysées. That's been open since about 1945, and it's this very grand, very large cabaret theater where you all sit in kind of tiered seating at little tables and they have you can eat you can do different packages you can either eat have half a bottle of champagne or a bottle of champagne and watch the show and i would recommend if, if you feel like splashing out to go and do the whole thing you dress up you go there you have the food you have the champagne and watch the show and it's kind of very glitzy and it's it's i mean if, if those of you who've been to las vegas you will know the kind of kind of thing that they do because obviously Las Vegas tries to recreate some of that shows but the Lido is just amazing and it's probably one of the most famous the other one of course is the Moulin Rouge which a lot of people know which goes right back to sort of the the late 1800s and and that's the Moulin Rouge kind of created the French Cancan -Can, and I went years and years ago to Moulin Rouge and of course they make a big thing about the the can can and and whatnot but a lot of famous people have actually performed on stage ella fitzgerald and eisenman ellie frank sinatra elton john and um 
you know, it, it really is. It, 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 it's kind of probably more historical than than the Lido and the Moulin Rouge. You can do the similar thing as as a cabaret thing, and there's there's many others you can get find out about them through the concierge, etc. So, but I would recommend the Lido. It's probably the most fun, and then of course if you want to go slightly more historic. Then you you've got the the, the Moulin Rouge. The last thing to do, if you have time, is to spend a day to go out to Versailles. Now. I had originally gone out to Fontainebleau, which is another kind of palace, but it was only relatively recently that I went out to the Palace of Versailles, and the Palace of Versailles is just amazing. I mean, you, you really need to spend a day going there, and there's lots of tours that go out there. Um, and, you know, Paris Vision, which is one of the best-known tour companies, does a very good one out there. And you, you get taken out to the Palace of Versailles, and it's just mind-bogglingly glitzy. The royal apartments, the Hall of Mirrors, the Queen's bedroom, it's just amazingly opulent and really really it's worth you know going on a tour and going inside you can then go through the park which has these big uh, rowing lakes and just the most amazing amazing gardens it's just quite spectacular so it's worth you know going on a, on a trip out to Versailles and there's there's lots of different tours of, of, of different uh, times and I would go on a guided tour because there's so much to see and it's relatively, there's so much history that it's worth going on a guided tour so you get the whole story. And in summer, they have a fountain show, which is, which is just, um, just amazing. And, you know, it's, it's a whole day's trip because you've got to go through all the palace, which is just mind-boggling, the chandeliers and the artwork and the opulence. And the gardens are just completely and utterly and utterly stunning. So we've done quite a, a, a massive... Thing this this week and this has been much longer but just to remind you what to do in Paris you've got your city tour you've got your Eiffel Tower you've got the Louvre you've got the Champs-Élysées you've got the Musée d'Orsay you've got the Ile de la Cite you've got the Pompidou Centre you've got the Lido Show you've got Versailles and you've got the Seine and the Seine is basically the river that runs through the, the centre of Paris and what I would also do is recommend that you just go on one of the tours there's three or four different boat cruises the most famous is the Bateau Parisien which is a glass topped boat which just tootles around was the Bateau bus, which, which has eight stops between the Eiffel Tower and the Jardin de Plantes. Um, and it's really worth doing that. And you get a, you get a whole different sense of Paris being, being on the river. So that's pretty much all we are going to talk about on this podcast. It has been a pretty long podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. I just want to wrap with a mailbag. First of all, thanking those people who've listened to the podcast. And even more importantly, also thank people who subscribe to the podcast and who've also written to me in the mailbag had a couple of emails about the qe2 one from amy who wrote wonderful podcast and great work assembling all that information links and pictures about the qe2 i felt the same way you did about the qe2 such a worthy ship even though she's a little dated i can only hope the business is so good for cunard that they decide to spend some real money on her I travelled on her in 2004's Northern Delights through the North Sea. I know what you mean about the creaking in rough seas, but I thought it was exciting. My whole reason to be on board is to feel like I was on this liner that I grew up in love with, not to be in a floating hotel like many of those other giant cruise ships. The people were wonderful and the service great, but the charm of standing on her deck and the excitement of leaving aboard will live with me forever. I'm going on the QM2 in February, but all I can think of is getting back on board the ship that won my heart. Thanks for doing such a wonderful job covering her and glad you had such a marvellous time. So thanks for that, Amy. I also had one from Robert Lightbody who has some of the sites that I actually linked to in, in the blog. I'm listening to your fascinating podcast about your Q2 Atlantic Crossing. I'm incredibly jealous as this is something I've always wanted to do. 
The reason I'm emailing is to ask us back and link to the specific podcast, which I've done for him. So if you want to go to any of his sites and hear some great resources there, and you'll you'll get the link to his site on, on the blog, which you can get to via mytravelreviews.com. Finally, correction section. Jonathan wrote to me about the Hong Kong podcast, saying that there was an error in my brief lecture, brief lecture, which I thought was very grand, way of putting my podcast on the history of Hong Kong. Hong Kong Island was actually ceded to the British in 1860, after which the new territories were leased for 99 years. It was not Hong Kong that was leased, but the new territories. When this lease expired, Chinese officials naturally refused to renew the terms, recognised that trying to maintain Hong Kong proper, whilst control of Kowloon, Lantou, etc. was left to Beijing, was going to be a nightmare. Britain ceded Hong Kong Island back to China. Enjoy the podcast. Keep up good work so thanks for that jonathan if you're looking for other travel podcasts the one i would recommend you to listen to is ipod traveler which nick and opal um, some friends do very interesting they look more at traveling around europe from a budget perspective great experience have they have a lot of fun on the podcast and i'll put a link to that or you can search on itunes for ipod traveler so that's all i've got time for this week Um, I was going to talk a little bit about places to stay. All I want to say about that is it's very expensive in Paris. I stayed at the uh, Marriott and Champs-Élysées, which was horribly expensive, and I would never pay to stay there myself. But I was there on a conference. I will put a link to the room. It's a very nice hotel, and people on the conference just raved about it. So I will put links to that. And what I found the best thing to do in terms of Paris is make sure you just use an Expedia Travelocity and search and search. And if you do leave it relatively late. Laterooms.com normally has great deals for hotels in Paris and um, the metro is pretty efficient so even if you're not horribly centrally you can get around pretty well. So that's all I've got time for on the podcast this week. Next week I'm going to be in Germany and I'm going to be in Dusseldorf so we'll talk a little bit about what is there to do in Dusseldorf and a little bit about uh, Dusseldorf itself which was completely flattened during the war unlike Paris so we'll talk a little bit about what there is to do in kind of a rejuvenated city. Until then, happy travels. You've been listening to my channel.